Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? My guest today is Jesse Single. Jesse is a journalist and author with a particular interest in psychology and behavioral science. In addition to being a contributing writer at New York Magazine, his work has appeared in outlets like the New York Times, Slate, and the Daily Beast. I asked Jesse to come on the show specifically to talk about his new book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Now, as a practicing psychologist and the writer of what you might call popular psychology, this is a topic I spent a lot of time thinking about. Our conversation ranges over multiple topics from misconceptions about self-esteem and the positive psychology movement to the replication crisis in psychology and how we can guard ourselves against misleading statistics and media coverage of psychological research. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jesse Single, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So before we dive in, can you give us a quick overview of your background and sort of what led you to the topic of fad psychology in particular and then and then deciding to actually write a book on it? Yeah, so I sort of was, you know, when I was 22 or so fresh out of college, most of my experience was just sort of, I guess what you could call liberal punditry, uh, really bad liberal punditry. Mm-hmm. I, I made original circa 2006 arguments like uh, gay marriage is good and uh, George W. Bush is bad, which, you know, there's a place for that. But um, I think, you know, eventually I just, I probably found my way into all this stuff versus uh, via Jonathan Haidt uh, and, mm. and moral foundations theory. I got more interested in the question of why people believe things I disagree with than fighting with them about it. Although I still do some of that. And through this sort of weird circuitous path, I ended up in a, a graduate school program for public policy that had a strong psychology component. And I just, I sort of lucked into this job at New York Magazine where they were launching a behavioral science vertical. And, you know, I, I just sort of fell into a debunking role. There was, there turned out that there was a lot of stuff to debunk and I had a lot of support from a, an institution. So it's worked out really nicely, but a lot of it was just sort of random and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of debunking kind of popular ideas in social science, one one question I had for you is, what do you think is the, if you had to pick one, what's the most egregious form of misleading statistics you see in behavioral science and psychology these days? Oh man. I mean, th- I'm probably cheating by answering a slightly more zoomed out question, but but basically the issue of external validity where it's like this study showed this in a, a tightly controlled lab setting. Therefore, we're going to say this about human behavior in the real world. That drives me crazy. And it comes up over and over in my book because um you know, a lot of the time, even when you're looking at a real effect in a lab, the real world is a noisy place and we have a lot of other forces bearing down on us. So I think that's the most common one. Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you kind of uh, tagging on that idea, just for your average kind of um, consumer of, you know, kind of self-help, self-improvement, pop psychology, what would you say if you could give people like one super specific tip about how to avoid some of these more deceptive uh, research and statistical practices what you got any got any tips for us i hate to say it but i think anything especially in the areas of positive psychology and social psychology whatever claims they make in the press releases or the ted talk you know i'd be comfortable telling people just like discount those claims by 30 or 40% uh, maybe more just just automatically assume there's some level 
of public relations massaging going on, of exaggeration going on. Uh, and I hate to be so pessimistic and cynical, but a lot of this overclaiming is just sort of endemic. And, you know, that doesn't mean every area is bankrupt or are, there aren't useful ideas. I think particularly for like clinical psychology and self-help, things like cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness meditation, they have their critics, but the evidence base there is much stronger than the ideas I talk about in my book. So just be more skeptical in general, unfortunately, is the best advice I can give. It's funny. I Sometimes I joke with people that the most important thing I learned getting a, a fairly research-heavy PhD was in being far more skeptical of all research than I encountered. It's sort of like the once you see how the sausage is made kind of thing. It really tempers your enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. I have to say after, you know, I'm not, I'm likely not an expert in the methodological issues like you are, but just having written a book about this now, uh, it, it has really sapped my desire to just do sort of straightforward, positive coverage of new psychological research. I feel like I'm contributing to the problem when I do that. Yeah, it's really tricky. Um, so let, let's kind of dive into some specifics here. In, in your book, you have a great chapter on um, on self-esteem, which is a, it's a, it's a, it was just a really fun chapter to read because you, you sort of uh, talk about a, a really important topic that I think everyone has kind of heard about and can kind of relate to, but you've got a great narrative around it. Um, where, where you sort of talk about the idea and it, it's the history of the idea and it's kind of rise to fame in like the, the late 20th century, but then sort of go on to show how most of the empirical basis for self, the whole kind of self-esteem movement um, was pretty shaky, I think, at best. Um, and that after, you know, decades uh, and billions of dollars in funding, um, it turns out like trying to boost people's self-esteem doesn't seem to have all that much impact. <laughs> so I'm curious, like on, on this topic of self-esteem specifically, given all your sort of research into this, do you think the problem is with the concept of self-esteem itself or in how we sort of think about it and try to influence it, if that makes sense? It does. And and one of the areas where I really appreciated the input of my editor, Alex Starr, was he would often say like, look, this is a book with a lot of debunking, but don't go far in the other, don't go too far in the other direction. Like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, except he wouldn't say that because that's a cliche. That, that was me. <laughs> um, Self-esteem at the most basic level, if you view yourself as totally worthless and that view of yourself as completely worthless colors all your everyday interactions and your sense of where you are in the world, that is bad. That will correlate with negative outcomes and, and things like cognitive behavioral therapy or other forms of therapy or pharmaceutical interventions might help. That's the kernel of truth. During the self-esteem craze, the problem was uh, sparked largely by this guy, John Vasconcelos, a California assemblyman. People started to believe that self-esteem was really at the root of all sorts of different societal problems, things like crime and the education achievement gap. And this was on the basis of correlational studies that were often not particularly well conducted and, and didn't control for what they should control for. Sometimes they even got causality backwards. Like there, there's more evidence to suggest grades influence self-esteem than that self-esteem influences grades, although even there the evidence is somewhat weak. So a lot of my book is about is about drawing those lines. Like it's reasonable to say that if your self-esteem is just utterly in the gutter, that could have negative consequences. It's not reasonable to suggest A, that self-esteem is the causal driver of these major societal problems, or B, that we have like a really reliable way to improve it for a lot of people, because I don't think we do. 
you know, one of my biggest frustrations with with the field of psychology, and I, I think specifically about uh, clinical psychology, because that's what I do, but we, there's too many like umbrella terms, these really broad, huge terms, like in some ways, depression is kind of one of these. It's just, it, it can mean, you know, you ask like a hundred psychologists to define depression and you're going to get a lot of weird <laughs> variety in terms of what they think is important. But it strikes me that I wonder if one of the reasons, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. One of the reasons it's been so hard to think clearly about self-esteem and, and research it well, and not to mention like base good public policy off it is that it's just such a huge, unwieldy term. And maybe maybe we would be better off looking at sort of subcomponents of self-esteem. Like I know in, in, in some of the psych research I've seen, this concept of self-efficacy um, tends to be a lot more helpful um, in terms of improving outcomes. Like looking at, it's not how you feel about yourself kind of globally. It's very skill or situation specific. How do I view my competency in yeah. this particular task? Um, so I, I wonder if, do you think that could be part of what's, what's causing all the, these kind of like low grade, um, murky correlations it's just a way too big unwieldy term. Yeah. It's interesting. I touch on a version of this in the chapter, though, not exactly how you put it, but I think that's a good point. Like a lot of the self-esteem interventions were like trying to make kids feel like they were loved or lovable. It was like, okay, I mean, it's nice to feel like you're lovable, but that's a pretty big, almost spiritual thing. And Americans in particular, like when you give them self-esteem scales, we, we don't seem to have a uh, shortage of self-esteem in that sense of how great we are. People tend to overstate their ability. We rate highly on self-esteem scales. I do think if you want to look at this rigorously, what you're suggesting is useful. Like, so self-efficacy of like, can I solve problems? Can I accomplish these goals? One of the tie-ins to self-esteem where there is a little bit of evidence, and and it's funny I came to this conclusion because um, mindset interventions were sort of a punching bag of a lot of the, the people mm. you could see me as aligned with in terms of being skeptical of a lot of social psych. Mindset interventions uh, suggest that people have growth mindsets, which means I can improve my ability, I can get better, or fixed mindset. My ability is fixed. This is usually applied to classroom settings where like, you don't want kids to think I got an F on the math test. I'm terrible at math. I'll never be good at math. <clears throat> Carol Dweck and her colleagues suggested there's a way to nudge kids into a growth mindset. If I work harder, you know, my brain's like a muscle, I can do better. Um, this idea was overhyped for sure, but but the latest and greatest and biggest study suggests that for the kids at the sort of bottom of the achievement uh, distribution, there, there could be something there. It looks like it's a sort of a low effort, low but significant reward uh, intervention. And that's an example of a much more, you're honing in on a much more specific thing than their self-esteem, right? Because maybe some of these kids with fixed mindsets uh, think they're great at sports or think they're attractive. Really, the issue is if if Dweck's theory is correct, and maybe more research will come out, the issue is they think that they're just stupid and that they can't do better in school, which, you know, you could see how that could have a negative impact on their study skills and so forth. Yeah, it's interesting you, you describe that as a relatively low effort or cost way to get a, however low, uh, still some seemingly legitimate kind of reward or benefit. This strikes me though as a bigger issue, and I'd love to get your take as a, as a science journalist about talking about what I would call effect size. So like you can get a statistically significant yeah. difference, right? Yes, this magical intervention, like it, it does improve self-esteem, but then it turns out like it improves it by, you know, 0.8%. It's statistically significant, but yes. like how much does it actually matter in real life? So how do you, how do you help people like 
think about this a little bit more or like what causes people to sort of ignore this, I guess? Well, I mean, sometimes it, there's no intuitive layperson way, layperson friendly way to even like um, translate it from statistics. And I'm, I'm by no means a statistics expert. I, re- I rely on statisticians all the time to walk me through this stuff. So I think the argument of the mindset intervention folks was like, uh, you expose the low, the lowest achieving kids to one 60 minute program. I think it was. And I think it reduces by three percentage points, the chance they'll remain off track for graduation. Um, that might not be exact, but something like that is at least concrete. And you can say, is it worth devoting a 60 minute program to this particular benefit in other areas, uh, including, you know, grit and the implicit association tests, that problem you described is endemic of, of you find correlations that are statistically significant or you you introduce interventions that supposedly improve things, but the size of the improvement is often so small or so hard to even understand that I just think these ideas get way more credit than they deserve, especially given that if you know a little bit about statistics, it is not hard to find something. You know, it's not hard to find some statistically significant relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and it kind of, you know, yeah, cherry picking results is, is obviously a big problem. I suppose if I was in kind of Carol Dweck's camp and really on the side of, you know, this isn't a huge effect, uh, but it's, you know, it's a 3% bump for a, you know, 60 minute intervention. I suppose one kind of optimistic take on that would be these sorts of effects might compound over time, right? So that if we, we, we narrowed down our scope of focus to, we're pretty sure empirically this does lead to a admittedly small, but significant real world effect that then might give us more confidence to design and pour resources into more elaborate um, interventions based on that principle and see if we can get that effect size higher. Right. Potentially. Yeah. I, although I would assume that if it's like, if it's really, the explanation here is really these, it had never occurred to these kids that the brain is like a muscle. And this was the first time they're mm-hmm. hearing that metaphor, which as I say that out loud, I, I'm a little skeptical, but um, <laughs> you would, you would expect there to be diminishing returns after they're first introduced to the metaphor. But, yeah. the, but the broader point that, you know, if you hone in on this group and this specific message, you could refine the intervention further. I'm all for that, but maybe, maybe don't do the Ted talk or the best selling book before you've done that further refinement. <laughs> So let's switch gears a little bit to another super popular topic that you you devote a chapter to in your book on positive psychology. Um, Now, I got to say, I had mixed feelings reading this chapter because on the one hand, Martin Seligman and the whole idea of positive psychology in a lot of ways was one of the major things that got me interested in becoming a psychologist in the first place like that. I still remember that sort of infectious like enthusiasm for this concept of not just alleviating mental illness, but building mental strength, right? I think and, it, tra- it transformed the field, right? It was, it was huge. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so many people of my generation and younger are like, you, you tell them about psychology and they're like, oh, positive psychology. You know, they've read a ton about it. But um, to a lot of the points in your book, I have to admit that the longer I've worked in psychology as a clinical psychologist, um, the more I just really resonate with a lot of those critiques you lay out from you know, sloppy or even like kind of downright misleading statistical analyses, wishful thinking, or these like big kind of grandiose silver bullet solutions to really complex problems like PTSD or suicide in in veterans. So I, I guess my question is sort of based on your research and experience talking with a lot of, you know, pretty accomplished people in the field, do you think we ought to be putting resources into this idea of 
preventative mental health? Or would we be better off kind of diverting those resources to more and better treatments for mental illness? I realize that's a huge question, but yeah, I, I was going to know that's a, that. that's a really good and difficult question. I, I would say it depends a lot on the a the resources you're expending and b the stakes are. So so the chapter focuses on comprehensive soldier fitness. This it was uh, it's a mandatory army program designed to prevent PTSD and suicide. Uh, this chapter sort of becomes alphabet soup, but CSF, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness, was adapted from the Penn Resilience Program, PRP. That is a positive psychology offering that uh, was geared at preventing anxiety and depression in 10 to 14-year-olds. Now, if there was a 10-hour curriculum, I forget the exact length, call it 10 hours, uh, that you could give to all fifth graders, and it could meaningfully reduce their later anxiety and depression you could make a strong case that bang for the buck, that that's maybe worth it. You'd have to see the specifics. That's not unreasonable. The problems that I lay out in the chapter are, first of all, while they found statistically significant effect sizes of this program, even uh, the program's creator, a psychologist named Jane Gillum, she said in a meta-analysis, we don't know if these are clinically significant. The effect sizes are small enough that we're not even sure these work in the real world. So that's in the setting of 10 to 14-year-olds with too much homework and boy trouble and bullying. So you take that program that, that doesn't seem to do much in that setting, and, and we should give her credit for trying. She's a thoughtful researcher. No one had really come up with a proven way of preventing rather than treating anxiety and depression. And she had every right to try. I don't think she overclaimed. But then Martin Seligman and the Positive Psychology Center at UPenn take that program that already doesn't work with 10 or 14-year-olds or, or already is of questionable utility and they apply it to a setting where you're sending 20-year-olds into like the most horrific urban warfare, maybe in history, just, just situations I could not imagine. I would just flee from them. And that's my gripe. The stakes there are much higher. You're talking about, not that we don't want to prevent teenagers from getting anxiety and depression, that's important. This is a much more extreme situation. And I think in a situation like that, with, with a condition like PTSD, where we have some validated treatments that seem to work pretty well. I would argue there you want to put your focuses on the proven side of it, on, on how to get the PTSD under control and reduce the probability of suicide or, or in outline cases, murder. I just think the urgency there is so great that you don't want to mess around with experimental or unproven stuff. Whereas a, a room of 10 to 14-year-olds, I'm not as offended by using them as guinea pigs to see if a preventative depression program works. It just seems like very different situations. Yeah, so it almost sounds like it's not so much the... the tension isn't between preventative mental health versus treating mental illness so much as whatever we choose to target, let's make sure it's based on solid research, not kind of big overgeneralized claims. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, Seligman, who I, I, I'm sure I think is a genius in many ways. And he will go down in the history books as a great social psychologist. Like at one point he said that he thought CSF would work because it addresses anxiety and depression and, you know, PTSD is associated with anxiety and depression. That's not really how anything works. Like if I have a condition that causes a cough and then you cure the cough, you're not necessarily addressing the underlying condition. And PTSD experts do not believe you can meaningfully treat, let alone address PTSD just by treating the anxiety and the depression. That's sort of part of it. But I, I think he and his team came at this from not really understanding what PTSD is. And, and I quote Richard McNally, uh, one of the leading experts on PTSD, who's at Harvard, 
basically saying as such that this none of this was a secret. People understood this was a very sort of um, hypothetical idea. Yeah. So one of the kind of, at least to my mind, one of the really big themes in your book is the idea of what what an economist would call opportunity cost. Um, and specifically that one of the real dangers in fad psychology is that it misallocates resources, right? Especially money. So for example, you, there's you know millions and millions of dollars going to these sort of researchers studying kind of pop psych ideas. And that that money could have been allocated somewhere else, potentially addressing more sort of structural factors, maybe affecting people's mental health. So I'm really curious to get your take on, like, what do you see as some of these sort of deeper, maybe more structural factors that are, you know, really strongly impacting mental health and well-being that kind of get get ignored, both from a, a resources and attention point of view, that if you... I don't know if, if you were a you know billionaire ph- philanthropist, you know, ready to just throw millions of dollars at, at mental health. What do you think gets ignored in that in that area? So I think the question of what gets ignored is sort of gets confounded by or mixed up in complicated ways with the question of what's possible. Um, hmm. So so the United States, let's just talk about kids. We just the Biden administration just passed what what could be like a historic expansion of sort of a. Uh, a child benefit. You have a kid, you get a certain amount of money, and and that's going to really increase the income of low-income families in particular. I think if you have three kids, it's like eleven thousand dollars a year. And if you're, you know, a family with an income of forty or fifty thousand dollars, that that's huge. That could really improve your life. That is an incredibly thing to pull, hard thing to pull off politically in a country like ours. Like basic aspects of sort of the European welfare state, uh, we don't have those, and it's very hard to implement them. Which is why. You know, even though people sort of, for I don't want to make this too political, people to the left will say what Biden did wasn't enough. It it is a big deal. It nudges us in the direction of like European welfare states. That's the kind of thing where I just think three hundred dollars a month per kid in the pocket of poor families, whatever problems they have, most of those problems can be addressed with money. If you need more childcare, that be, that can be addressed with money. If you need school supplies, that can be addressed with money. And I don't want to, I could sort of become a one trick pony on this on redistribution in general. But part of my book's argument is like, when you look at the reason uh, low income kids don't do as well in school to try to pin that on grit on their kids, not having enough stick to itiveness. Well, it's like, maybe that's true, but if they grew up in chaotic environments where they lacked basic resources or a stable family, that's why they can't focus. It might not be fixable by the time you get to them in school. So I'm, I'm much more in favor of just like, basically old school redistribution than, than psychological tricks. I think we obviously need a sound sound understanding of human psychology for most interventions to work, but I, I just think we put way too much weight on the idea that we can tweak individuals to fix complicated social problems. Yeah. And, you know, my clinical practice, one of my favorite little mantras that I like to throw at people is, you know, it's not all in your head, <laughs> meaning no. there, there's, there's a, people often have a very simplistic idea of, improvement, whatever that means, whether it's getting better grades or being less anxious or whatever. And it's just that, you know, if I, if I just get my head on straight and like have a better attitude about things, like everything's going to get a lot better. And, and like you said, while there's obviously something to that, it, it sort of, um, it glosses over the fact that there is a very complicated relationship between your internal environment and your external environment. Right. So this it's, it's very possible, like, like you sort of suggest that a kid who comes from a really impoverished, chaotic environment 
they're just not going to be as receptive to some of those interventions. They're just not going to have the bandwidth maybe to sort of take them in as opposed to a kid who has a lot of sort of stability and comfort in their life. So one of my takes on this that I really started thinking more about after reading your book in particular is that it it would be helpful to, to think with a little bit more nuance about this relationship between sort of internal and environmental uh, factors when we think about interventions for mental health generally. And then maybe there's actually a, a relationship, like an interplay between those two. It's sort of a false dichotomy to think one versus the other. No, absolutely. And and, and I don't want to give the impression that I think like, you know, the present generation of poor 10-year-olds are just screwed and we shouldn't try to help them. But in much the same way, treating a soldier with PTSD is complicated, uh, more complicated, more uh, individualized than doing a universal program to prevent it. A given, different, different poor 10-year-olds have different problems. Some of them might have behavioral pro- problems and, and need help with that. Some of them might just need more tutoring. Um, there, there's a range of different interventions you could use, but I, I mentioned this a few times in my book, I, I was raised in a pretty affluent suburb of Boston. That's where I'm recording now and visiting my parents. And like all that stuff that poor kids need, we just had, we had every step of the way. My lack of grit didn't matter. My not having like an optimistic attitude didn't matter. I, I was sort of basically carried to the gates of college and dropped off there. And that that's what I get a little bit fired up because it just annoys me to imagine, think about the many kids who are likely much smarter than me or could have been much smarter than me and definitely had more potential the idea that they didn't get to where I've been able to get because of some psychological failing, even if it's true, it doesn't, that was caused by a bunch of other stuff that I never had to worry about. So that's why I view these uh, ideas as a little bit of an oversimplification and sometimes bordering on, I don't want to say offensive, that word gets overused, but like, you know, that grit isn't close to the uh, really important reason poor kids don't succeed. I mean, come on. If you have any understanding of of how America works and who gets what, I just don't buy that storyline. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in, in my context as a, as a therapist, I, I would almost go so far as to say it's, it's kind of unethical as me as a, th- for me as a therapist to imply or tell my clients that if they have anxiety or, or let's say they have depression, that it's, they just need to start thinking more optimistically because it's as big an issue as overly pessimistic thinking styles may be in depression. And it pretty clearly is an issue. It, it, there's this great quote that comes from some, I forget where it came from, but it's the quote is, um, before you rush to diagnose yourself with depression, make sure you're not in fact surrounded by assholes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That like it's kind of unethical to to encourage people to think that it's again, it's all in your head, where that might be some of it, but there are very clearly real environmental um effects. And we can't we can't just ignore those because they're complicated or hard, right? And, and the internal stuff seems more doable. Yeah. And you obviously, you know, as a clinician, your job is to help people cope with difficult circumstances they might not be able, they might have trouble with. That's different from just saying, well, look on the bright side. I mean, <laughs> what, what, a, one part of, um, I don't want to turn it into a cartoon, but like comprehensive soldier fitness included a slide or a mantra of like hunt the good stuff. And it's like, okay, there's a place for hunting the good stuff and for gratitude journals and all that stuff. Maybe some of it has an effect, but like, you're sending, again, you're sending people into war. Are they going to hunt the good stuff while their friend's legs are getting blown off? There's a limit to these mantras. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit to another topic that comes up kind of indirectly in the book a little bit. And that I spent a lot of time thinking about because I, 
it's the the replication crisis in psychology. And and I think a lot about it because I basically came up through the ranks in the midst of this crisis where a lot of like revered, long kind of believed findings in psychology, especially especially social psychology, I think, it turns out like they don't replicate like other people try to do them and it doesn't turn out. And so it's really questioned a lot of our assumptions about not just um, particular findings, whether things are true or not, but even the whole way we go about doing research in behavioral science and psychology. Um, so first question for you on this topic is, what do you think are some of the biggest contributors to the replication crisis in the first place? Like how, how did we get here? I guess like the overarching one is just sort of that issue of degrees of freedom where, you know, you, you throw everything you have at a data set, you ask all sorts of questions and then whatever pops out, whatever signal pops out, you just focus in on that. Um, uh, so, you know, Brian Wansink, who, who was caught up in a scandal, he, he did these cute studies with like self-refilling soup bowls and like bigger and smaller plates affecting people's eating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Stephanie Lee, who's a really good young science reporter at BuzzFeed, you know, found emails from him where he's telling a research assistant, just like test everything. And then, you know, wh- whatever we find, whatever hypothesis is true, we'll go with that. And statistically, if you, if you test a hundred different things, a few of them are by chance alone going to turn out to be statistically significant. Uh, so if you don't have guardrail, like obviously it's fine to do exploratory analysis if you label it as such, but you need some guardrails for scientists or else they're just sort of like wandering around in the woods and whatever shiny mushroom they find, they'll bring back and publish it, which is not a good system. Yeah. I, one of the things I learned pretty, pretty well, I think in, in grad school, get, getting my master's and PhD and, and spending a lot of time in, in research labs is that the, the pressure to produce is enormous. I mean, crushing Same. is probably yeah. the better adjective. And so I remember these, I learned pretty early on that the research track was not for me and that I wanted to go clinical, but I remember feeling so sorry for these, these interns and postdocs in research labs who are trying to become researchers and professors, professors, because the pressure to produce not just meaningful, but like impactful results from their research was just brutal. And so I wonder if in a, in a similar way, as we talked about before, that there are, it's, it's a, it's dangerous to ignore um, external sort of structural influences on mental health. I wonder if similarly, it's, it's tricky, but worthwhile to look at what are sort of, if the problem is too many degrees of freedom with these researchers, maybe we go one step back and say, sort of, what are the structural incentives that led people to this in the first place? No, no, that I, that's a really good point. And one of the sort of tensions in my book is like, okay, if, if you can't tweak individuals to improve these outcomes and society isn't going to fix itself overnight, where does that leave you? And, and a few times I raised the point that there are institutional level fixes or, or potential fixes. Like think of those as halfway between fixing individuals and fixing society. So um, wh- while you were uh, winding up that question, I was thinking about how that pressure to publish is real and, and whether or not we can change all the factors that lead into that. If you change things tomorrow so that it's not just like positive findings that can be published, but uh, you mm-hmm. get novel public, sorry, not just novel positive findings you can publish, but uh, you could publish replications and people are incentivized to do that. You can publish null findings. Uh, there's this idea of sort of a journal of null findings. That would give researchers, even if the the pressure to publish is unabating, 
more opportunities to publish without feeling like they have to overclaim because a re- replication adds to our scientific knowledge. A null finding adds to our scientific knowledge. Those sorts of things have just been sort of ignored or thrown in the file drawer or whatever. So that that's the kind of like institutional fix we could, you know, that, that they are looking into. People are making those changes while funding continues to get cut and the external situation continues to be a little bit of a nightmare for most researchers. I always thought that was bananas in, in scientific research that, that I learned really early on that no journal is going to look at you if you don't produce positive findings and no worthwhile journal is going to look at you unless you produce really exciting, novel, imp- potentially impactful findings, which is crazy because the entire like bedrock of scientific progress is falsification, right? Yes. <laughs> the idea yeah, exactly. Yeah. These things can be proven wrong. And it's, it's, just nutty that they're that the not only do we not have incentives to do that, but we it's almost like we actively discourage that and incentivize people to ignore that and do the opposite. So, like in some ways, like not to get deterministic, but like no wonder we have a replication crisis. How how could we not? <laughs> yeah, I think the sociology of science is really important and often gets neglected. And and one of the points I want readers of my book to walk away with is to stop putting science on a pedestal. I mean, I think science is when practiced well, are our best way of gaining true and important knowledge about the world. But the social, it's it's undergirded by a social structure that is in many ways flawed. And what you just laid out is a perfect example. You you could not come up with a worse way of incentivizing important question asking and critical thinking than this bizarre publishing system where only novel positive findings are published. I mean, it's not that they never publish replications, but I think listeners know what we mean. Um, that, that's humans made that decision to structure it that way. And they can decide to structure it a different way as they should. Yeah. So real quick, if you had to put some, some serious money down on, you know, kind of psychology and behavioral sciences progress going forward, like fundamentally, are you bullish or bearish on psychology actually learning from the replication crisis and getting better? Or would you expect that things just kind of settle back to that previous set point? I put my money on things improving because people people are more I think they're more affected by social feedback than basically anything else. I mean that's a, a big finding yeah. of social psychology. Uh we're at a point where if you publish a clearly shoddy paper, whereas 10 years ago you would have gotten a lot of write-ups, maybe if you're lucky you get a TED Talk invitation, you might still get some of those things, but you'll have a lot of your colleagues sort of rolling their eyes at you on Twitter. There's less gatekeeping. They could Someone could just do a blog post about the weakness of your analysis that will go viral. Um, and there's been some talk of like, you know, bullying and incivility coming in with that. Yes, here and there, people are jerks. Overall, it's incredibly important that all this has opened up and that it's easier uh, for scientists to criti- criticize their peers. And, and that's why I'm optimistic. I'm also optimistic because as we've been discussing the last few minutes, these aren't like, wicked problems that are impossible to solve. Many of them, you actually have like a menu of potential solutions that that should work quite well because they seem to very much target the problems themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So you make the claim um, that one of the fundamental reasons why all this fat psychology and, and the bad policy that's based off it um, catches on so easily is because basically the human brain just has an easier time latching on to simple exclama- explanations for things and sort of these sort of one-to-one simplistic causal connections and, may- and maybe even actively resists complex explanations. Um, so how do we, like, how can we counteract this? Like you have this great phrase, the, the siren's call of simplicity. Um, can you actually 
can we train people to be more sort of curious and thoughtful and open? Or like, or do we just kind of have to accept the fact that this is just a major blind spot? It's probably not going anywhere and we just need to account for it and not waste resources trying to improve it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I th- the sirens call of simplicity, that might have been uh, a young social psychologist named Nina Strumminger, who I quote at the end of the book, or it was me. I'll take credit for it, but people should know it might not be <laughs> Maybe me. Maybe I missed the quotations. No, no, it's fine. Um, I don't know what you do about that. And, and I think that's where you like the, the role of the media becomes really important because so many of these ideas get propped up by the media in the most credulous way. Um I don't know the answer. I mean, the one answer is the media should do more coverage of meta science and the media should do more debunking. And I think there's been some progress there. I mean, there's a small handful of journalists sort of who have made the replication crisis their beat, but you know, this is an element of human nature that that's a problem everywhere. Obviously it's not just this discussion, but politics policy. And I I don't really have any good answers because I think it's very deep seated. So, Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to forgive you for not having giant uh, society-wide <laughs> human suggestions. <laughs> I will, okay. The next time you have me on, I will have fixed human nature, I promise. Okay. Great. Well, okay. Let's make it a little more personal then. So you just wrote a book about all this stuff. And I would think, you know, as well as, as a journalist generally, but but in particular as, a, as an author, you, you kind of have to, I don't know, deal with this tension, right? Between sort of a like sexy simplicity, but then also sort of the stodgy complexity of of science in your writing and like when you're writing the book and even when you're promoting the book, right? So how, like, I don't know, how do you deal with that, right? How do you like, how did you, did you actively or, or do you think about how to manage that tension of, you know, appealing to simplicity? Because it is important, like who cares what you write if nobody reads it? On the other hand, it's really, there's a real slippery slope there, right? In, in, in too much simplicity. Yeah, I mean, you can only say it's complicated so many times before readers <laughs> lose interest. I, I I think one pretty straightforward thing journalists could do is to focus on psychology's attempts to reform itself, because a lot of those stories are really interesting. And the debates about mm-hmm. how to best do so, that gives you a little bit of like um, – spoonful of sugar for all the the medicine or the vegetables that is the debunking stuff. It's really hard because like I, at this point, I'm, I'm lucky to be in a place where I don't have to produce a huge amount of writing every day. I'm basically not comfortable covering individual studies at this point, unless they're really well uh, conducted or, or there's some really important reason to do so, or I'm just debunking them because I just think the average study offers very little evidentiary value. Um, yeah, I think I think telling stories of of like inspiring stories of science trying to improve itself are good. It's hard. You you can't you can't be good at this job of being a science journalist unless you're really comfortable with complexity. But you and your readers can get drowned in complexity, and you're just sort of sort of like tight roping a, a log across the swamp or whatever. That's a terrible analogy, but I, I think I'm <laughs> making no, myself I- clear. Yeah, you know, when I asked you that question about um, egregious misuses of statistics, um, you know, this sort of makes me think about um, the idea of cherry picking, where we talked about how researchers will just like throw everything against the wall and then like cherry pick the the result that looks the most interesting. But I I think if I had to give people like a piece of advice about um, consuming science and research generally, it would be like, don't cherry pick individual studies, right? Just because some blog post mentions one study it's the the mindset shift is to think in terms of trends, not single data points, 
right? To, and you, you mentioned meta-analyses, which is kind of the, the ultimate version of that. But yeah, it seems to me like that's a really big but doable thing maybe is to sort of get people to think in terms of, yeah, in terms of trends, not, not individual studies. Yeah. Well, in the storyline with a lot of this stuff, uh, power posing and the implicit association test jumped to mind is like, there are these promising seeming early studies that get covered, but then if you just literally go to sleep and check back in, in five years, uh, maybe 10 years in the case of the IIT, you'll see the scene has become much more complicated and much more contested as more research comes in. So, you know, I'm not sure science journalists should be jumping onto every new TED Talk trend and aggressively covering those exciting early studies because we, we know studies are often very low quality and, and these have shown to be because they, they don't replicate. So I think that's a good idea. Like if you're going to tell readers this notion of human nature is particularly exciting, how many studies do you have behind that? And And I don't, it's not like if you have 10 or 15, that means it's proven because oftentimes- right. There can be a bias in the whole literature, but but I think that's a good first step. So let's kind of end on a somewhat high note here, um, or maybe an optimistic note. I'm curious, what are some examples of self-help or self-improvement books that you've read or come across recently that you actually enjoyed and thought kind of worthwhile and, and useful? Got anything in there? I don't read a ton of that stuff because I'm so pessimistic about my own prospects for self-improvement. Um, right. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I'm going on um, Sam Harris's podcast, I think next month. And I'm oh, just, awesome. yeah, I'm very excited about that. And I'm, um, I really liked Dan Harris's, there's two Harris's who talk about meditation stuff, but um, I read Dan Harris's 10% Happier Forever yeah. Ago. That's an example of a book where it's like, he's not trying to say meditation will change your life forever. He's saying it could make you 10% happier, which I think is a useful thing for people to have. I've never been able to get on the meditation bandwagon. So I actually just bought uh, Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. And um, that's the kind of thing. Meditation and CBT, I, I just am much more confident in them than in so many other areas. And I think if I could stick with meditation, I would feel a little bit better. So that's where I'm going to make a real effort myself. Um, there's also like, you know, Oliver Berkman, uh, he's a guy who wrote a whole book about positive. Yeah. And, um, I feel bad saying this cause we're friends. Sorry, Oliver, but I, I have not read positive thinking for people who hate positive thinking. I think that's a subtitle, but it's like scientific based positive thinking. So I think you need to find the curmudgeons and then whatever they say about positive thinking is more likely to be true than what sort of the, the grifters say. Jesse, this, this has been awesome. Um, thank you so much for, for making the time to chat. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I have a newsletter, uh, jessysingle.substack.com. Uh, I also co-host a podcast that's more about like sort of culture war stuff with my friend Katie Herzog, Blocked and Reported. Um, maybe you could just include links to the show notes. But the, the most important thing at this juncture is if your listeners are interested by this and they can afford to pre-order or order the book for a first-time author, a relatively small number of extra sales makes a tremendous difference. So if they're intrigued by this and can afford it, I would I would love it if they bought the book. But um, yeah, if you can Google my name or check out my Substack, otherwise there's plenty of free stuff too. Yeah. And I, if it's not apparent by now, I personally really enjoyed the book. Jesse was good enough to give me a, an advanced copy. And um, as someone who tries to think like a scientist and, and behave like one, but also is, is sort of in the self-improvement game, I think I... I don't know. I just, I learned a lot. It was very entertaining. And I think it helps us all think a little bit more carefully about some of these really big um, issues because, you know, self-improvement is, it's, uh, you know, we all want to be better. Um, we want to feel better. We all want to do better. Um, 
but it's a it's a little more fraught than maybe it seems or or <laughs> as people suggest it is so jesse's book is a great place to start um thinking with a little more nuance on that yeah i really that means a lot coming from you nick i really appreciate it Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.